Now, today, uh, we're going to think about one of the most important questions in all of life. How is one saved? Now, thankfully, God has not left that as an open question. He has answered the question, and He's answered it multiple times throughout the Bible. And we're going to look at just one answer today from Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Now, some background is probably helpful as we just kind of fly into these verses today. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the ancient church. And in in the first chapter, Paul introduces himself as he normally does. And he talks about the immense spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And flowing from that, he opens the second chapter of Ephesians... Um, and takes the first 10 verses to explain the greatest spiritual blessing of salvation in Christ. In verses 1 through 6, he tells us what happened when God saved. God brings us from death to life. In verse 7, he tells us why God saves. So that in the coming ages, God could show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And in verses 8 through 10, he tells us how God saves. And that's what we'll focus on today. So let's read it together now. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's God's word. Do you remember the Disney movie Sleeping Beauty? (laughs) An evil witch curses a princess into a deep sleep and nothing can wake her but a kiss from her prince. Now indulge me for a moment and imagine that you're the princess and, and you've been awakened from a deep sleep by this kiss. I mean, you know, everyone watches everything the royal family does. And and so, of course, they've been following this story. All the news outlets want an interview, and and you agree to a press conference. And the first question they ask is, how was the curse broken? What would you say? I mean, there are some things that you just couldn't say, right? I mean, you couldn't say, well, I, I just thought about it and decided, you know, I've been asleep long enough. It's time to get up. You couldn't say, well, I just kind of claimed that victory for myself. You also couldn't say, I asked the prince to come and he came. I mean, you couldn't say any of that. You were asleep. You were cursed. Totally incapacitated. So what would you say? You'd say, I didn't break the curse. The prince did. You ought to ask him that question. In a way... We are the princess, and Jesus is our prince. Although it's not only a curse of sleep, but the curse of sin that incapacitated us. What, what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, is the answer to the press's question. How did we break the curse? We didn't. God did, in Christ. It was the prince's kiss that awoke us. But to make the story even more remarkable, we weren't a a sleeping beauty. We were a lifeless corpse. God had to make us alive, not just wake us up. So what I want to do today is just consider that kiss of grace 
taking this passage verse by verse. And the first thing that we see is that God saves us by grace through faith in Christ. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Two words stand out in that phrase, grace and faith. What is grace? Kind of the, the classical definition of grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God's kind disposition towards sinful people who can't get their act together and can't obey and can't find their way to Him. Grace is God's consistent provision for people who can't provide for themselves. Grace is God's activity of good to those whose activity is bad. Grace is not grading on a curve, you know, bumping up a letter grade to a student who tried really hard. Grace is like giving an A to a student who rarely showed up, who never passed a test, who never got any question right. Grace is being good to the undeserving. It's not like adding sprinkles to some wonderful cupcake. It's making a stone into a cupcake. Grace is an outpouring of good when only wrath is deserved. And this theme of grace runs throughout the Bible. I mean, if we just go back to the very beginning, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they had everything they needed, and then they sinned. And they, after that sin, they, they, they saw with new eyes how far they'd fallen. And what did they do? They, they, they grew afraid, so they ran and hid. I mean, before, here they were, naked and unashamed, totally free and happy. But after, they covered themselves with fig leaves, hiding from God. What did God do? He came to speak with them. What did he say? Well, yeah, there's a, a word of consequence for both the man and the woman, but their judgment isn't the end of the story. In this great twist of grace, God said he would crush the serpent's head by the seed of the woman. I mean, don't miss that. The offspring of the sinners would crush the serpent's head. The sin, they sin, and God makes promises of salvation. <laughs> then he clothes them, covering their newfound nakedness, replacing their tatted, uh, tattered fig leaves with animal skins. That's God's grace. It's as big as crushing Satan's head and as small as a pair of pants. <laughs> it's God's kindness and care bringing life where death reigns. Grace is Jesus saving the undeserving. Grace is what we're saved by. So what about that other word, faith? If grace is the basis of salvation, faith is the instrument of salvation. Faith is what lays hold of grace. It's the hand that reaches out and grabs. It's proof that grace has come. Faith is, is, is both trusting God will crush Satan's head and the action of putting on the pants that God provides. Now, faith is it's not some, I don't know, leap in the dark where we don't know what's on the other side and we just hope it'll turn out okay. Faith understands that though God is invisible, His promises are certain because we've seen them in Jesus Christ. 
Faith is the rock-solid surety of God's promises based on God's character. It's looking to God and trusting that His grace is sufficient to save because it's always been sufficient to save. It's believing that God has never once failed any man or woman who has trusted Him, and He's not going to start with me and you. Now look at the last phrase of verse 8. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Here's what Paul's saying. And it's what the entire New Testament says. The totality of your salvation is God's gift. The prime mover in our relationship with God is God. Nothing inside us compels God to save us. God saves us because he wants to save us. Now here's how this is good news. If your salvation was up to you, you would never have it. Because you can't muster up enough faith apart from God's grace to believe. You can't receive grace without God giving it. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. How can dead people merit anything? Some people will say, well, it, you know, it's up to us to choose. And that's true. Those who take hold of grace by faith do choose God. But how do we choose God? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says we can't choose God and we won't choose God on our own. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says God must make us alive to him first. God must do something in us before we can make any move toward him. Before God acts in our hearts, we don't want him. We're led by the devil and by our own sinful passions. To want God, we need to be alive to God. That's what God's grace does. It grants life so that we can have faith. When the Holy Spirit gives us a new nature, we then naturally do what our new nature wants. We come. We believe. We repent. We trust God. God's grace comes before faith, not the other way around. God must grant the gift of faith by grace. Jesus said as much in John 6, 44, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. A few verses later, he said, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. We are completely unable to bring about our own salvation. We are totally dependent on God to do it all. We're like Lazarus in the tomb. We need Jesus to call to us, come out. Do you ever wonder if your faith is strong enough to save you? I mean, do you ever wonder if there's a point at which God is just going to write you off because of your failures? There's sin in your life that you haven't beat. There, there's a past that you can't get over. There's a, a future that seems just too uncertain. Here's what Jesus says about that. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
maybe you feel weak in faith. But if you've come to Jesus, you've come to safety. You actually don't need to worry about the amount of faith you have. It's, I mean, it's Jesus who said it only takes a mustard seed. The amount of your faith is not the key. The object of your faith is. We have doubts. We stumble. We still sin. You don't need to worry if your faith is strong enough to save you. You just need to worry if Jesus is strong enough to save you. The one to whom you look. And Jesus is very strong. (laughs) He can hold you up when you can't hold yourself up. He knows what you need before you need it. The faith that endures is the faith placed in Jesus for safekeeping. Jesus won't cast you out. He can't. He was cast out for you. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. If you're in Christ, you are as secure as Christ is. Your sin can't kick you out of God's love because your righteousness never puts you in it. God saves by grace through faith. It's a gift. And all you must do is receive it and leave it all in God's hands. Now, secondly, God saves us by Christ's merit not ours. Look at verse 9. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And there's a a story from the 20th century pastor uh, Harry A. Ironside that that illustrates this verse. He, He tells of an older Christian who was asked to give his testimony. And the old man told how God had sought him and found him For God had loved him, called him, saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, and healed him. It was a great witness to the grace, power, and glory of God. After the meeting, another Christian took him aside and criticized his testimony. He said, I appreciate all you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. You know, salvation is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. The older Christian responded, oh yes, I I apologize for that. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away, and his part was running after me until he caught me. That's the story of every Christian. There are no self-made men and women in the kingdom of God. Only God made men and women. God saves us by Christ's merit, not by ours. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, now why does Paul say this? That it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because in every other religion, in nearly every other area of life, what you do is what you get, right? I mean, you work hard and you'll get promoted. You pay your dues and you'll be accepted. But in Christianity, it's entirely different. No one has ever become a Christian by their own effort. The only way we become Christians is by the work of Christ on our behalf. If you want to think you're saved by works, 
fine. That's fine. As long as you realize it's not your works, but Jesus. We can't boast in ourselves for something another accomplished, can we? Paul's warning of the danger of pride because, you know, often it's not our badness that keeps us from God, it's our goodness. I mean, the sinners flocked to Jesus when he walked this earth. But the Pharisees, I mean, they were they were model citizens. I mean, in fact, you'd want them as role models for your kids. But they killed Jesus. We must never forget our deadness to God before his life-giving grace. It's, it's so easy for us to believe we had some part in our salvation. But the truth is, we just didn't. We want to be winners. So we're tempted to lift ourselves up on the stilts of pride. But the gospel just knocks those stilts out from under us. Jesus doesn't just save the world's winners. He saves the world's losers. He saves those completely unable to save themselves. Paul knew the stilts of pride are still in the garage of our heart. And we're tempted to take them out for a spin around the block. But you must not do it because it's a false view of things. You're really not that tall. You didn't lift yourself up. Jesus did. He deserves the glory. And actually, this, this really helps us in our evangelism. Our message to the world is not one of self-accomplishment, but of total salvation by God. You don't need a certain amount of goodness for God to save you. He works only with deadness. The gospel is good news we hear, not a task list we accomplish. The gospel is the good news that though we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, God has saved us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where's our part in that? The sin that made it necessary, but that's it. So how can we boast? This is good news for you and for your neighbor who doesn't believe. When an unbeliever asks, how does God save? Your answer isn't become like me. It's look to Jesus. If you made yourself a Christian, your neighbor must become like you to be saved. But salvation is not based on works, so you can't boast. This just knocks the feet out from under all classism, all racism, all forms of superiority. The gospel makes beggars of us all. It shows us we're all equal before God. No one does good. No, not one. The only way any of us will ever make it to God is if God in grace comes to us. Our works can't overcome our sin. Only God's grace can. All praise goes to Him. And when we accept that with the empty hands of faith, we enter a new reality so different from our past that the only way to describe it is a new birth, which leads us to verse 10, our third and final point. God saves us by making us a new creation in Christ. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, Ephesians 2 starts with us walking in our trespasses and sins. 
And this great section ends with us walking in the good works God has prepared for us. Do you see the radical change? God saves us and recreates us in Christ. We are born again. By God's grace, we go from darkness to light, not as a result of works, but for works. And it's all of God. We are His workmanship. The, the word Paul uses here for workmanship is, is a word that denotes art. It's actually where we get our word uh, poem from. Every Christian is a work of art created by God in His image. And if you've come to Christ recreated by God in the image of Christ. You know, great art is its always incredibly intentional, isn't it? I mean, for example, when Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa, he, he went to, to, to really great lengths to get it just right. In fact, he was so concerned about getting it perfect that he actually never finished it. He was still working on it when he died. He, he, he would keep it with him and move it from city to city. He, he actually never even gave it to the man who commissioned it because he was never done perfecting it. He, he painted he did weird things like he painted the undergarments that no one would ever see. So the right texture was visible on the outer garments. He, he actually found corpses and studied the, the lip muscles to get her smile just right. He didn't consider it done until the painting attained this very specific and intentional character. Here's the point. God is doing that with you. You are His workmanship. He's telling a story through your life with every single stroke. And He knows what He's doing. Even more, God is telling a story about Himself through you. You know, art always says something about the artist. The, the Mona Lisa tells us about Leonardo. Redeemed people tell us about God. You're not just something nice God wants to hang on his wall. A good painting is never displaying only a picture. It's saying something beyond the picture. It's saying something about the world of the artist and about the artist himself. Every good piece of art is a message beyond itself. It's, it's this portal into another world. You are God's message to the watching world of what God does to sinners by grace. <laughs> As you do the good works God has prepared beforehand, you're a message of how God raises the dead and brings life into the world. You are a message of what redemption looks like. You're a message of God's goodness and grace. Even if you don't feel like it today, you're a message of the faithful follower. If you're suffering, by faith, you're saying that Jesus is better than your suffering. If you're joyful, by faith, you're saying Jesus is the cause of all joy. Whatever you're facing, your walk with God is a message to the world that whatever it is, whatever's going on, Jesus is better. He's better by far. Every Christian is a new creation in Christ. This masterpiece of God's redemptive story. 
We don't boast in our good works because how could we? God created them. We're just walking into what he created. He's telling his story through every Christian, the story of grace and mercy, the story of making dead people alive again in him. Now let me close with this. Do you know how valuable the Mona Lisa is? I mean, to some extent, we don't actually know because it's not for sale. Uh, but in 1962, it was insured for $100 million, which was the highest at the time. In, in today's money, that would be somewhere around $700 million, maybe more. Uh, that's an insane price tag for a canvas and some paint, isn't it? As far as we know, the Mona Lisa is, is, is still in the shape it was in when Leonardo left. I mean, yeah, it's old, but it has no slashes, no major injuries. Uh, it's still intact. But none of us are that way. Each one of us is slashed by sin, and not just others' sins against us, our sins, the things we committed. We're all a little smudged here with a, a gash over on that side and a wound that won't heal on its own. You know, maybe we, we started out as, as priceless originals, but look at us now, far from mint condition. What could we possibly be worth? Well, the gospel gives the answer. Marred as we might be, we're still God originals. And God isn't throwing us out. He's coming to redeem and restore. But it's costly. Every restoration is. What's the price? Jesus is the price. The price is not American dollars. Because of our sin, it's the blood of God's only Son. The only way to restore dead sinners is for the sinless one to die. There is no higher price God could pay. And it wasn't an easy price to pay. Going back to Sleeping Beauty, do, do you remember how the prince got to the princess? I mean, the evil witch knew if he kissed her, she'd wake up. So she kidnapped him. He had to fight his way out. He had to, to take the sword of truth and the shield of virtue and fight the evil witch, now turned into this huge fire-breathing dragon. He flings the sword and the prince pierces the dragon's heart, killing her. And in his victory, he pursues the princess. He finds her. He kisses her awake. Now that's a fairy tale. But Christianity is the true fairy tale. Jesus allowed himself to be kidnapped in flesh, making himself like us, yet without sin. Satan constantly harassed him, and on the cross he was tied up, nailed, and hung to die. He didn't fight for his life. He fought for yours. The fire-breathing dragon did his best, but the dragon's victory didn't last. The sword was thrust into his heart at the resurrection. 
the surprising twist of the gospel is that the triumph was a cross. Death was the only way to life. And on that first Easter, the Holy Spirit broke the stone holding death in place. And Jesus walked out in victory. And where did he go? He went to find you. He went to wake you up. He went to kiss you with grace and wed you to himself. You didn't break the curse. Jesus did. And now you're utterly changed from the inside out. You're his. Finally and fully and securely. And he's making you into a bride fit for him. You're his workmanship. The story is far more than a children's fairy tale. It's the true story of the real prince who came to the wrong side of town to find his bride and wake her up and take her home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. We thank you that we are not left alone, dead in our sins, but that you have made us alive, a new creation in Christ. And Father, I pray that we would just realize that, that we would lay hold of that, that we would believe you, trust you, and that we would walk into the good works that you have prepared for us beforehand. Lord, we give all praise and honor and glory to you. You have done it all. And we are so thankful. It's in Jesus' name we pray.